online. What's baking cake nation and welcome back to the chemistry cake online podcast where chatting about chemistry has never been sweeter. Chemistry cake is online and today airs our third episode of shark season. Previously, we had Dr. Danny Arias Rotondo talk uh, with us about what JAWS is, and we had Dr. Madison Fletcher chat with us about who gets to speak on JAWS and highlighted some of those speakers. Today, uh, we will be getting into the seaweeds as to why JAWS was created. <laughs> and who better to tell us than my friend Dr. Craig, not Craig Fraser. Craig, thank you so much for joining me today. How have you been? Yeah, thanks for having me. I've I've been pretty good, all things considered. You know, pandemic still raging on. Yeah, well, well, I'm glad to hear that you're doing uh, good, all things considered. Um, so sweet friend, Danny and Madison had chatted with us previously about what Jaws is and who can guest as a speaker. But I would like to know uh, why Jaws was created in the first place. I know Danny alluded to this briefly, but I want to know more about the motivation. So tell me more about that. So JAWS was created for, I guess, a variety of reasons. But the main thing that kind of brought it about um, was the pandemic. You know, um, lots and lots of conferences were cancelled due to lockdowns and, and just the pandemic in general. So there was already this lack of conferences. Um, so a space was needed to be filled there for a lot of people. Um, then the next reason would be, and this is from both my own experience and then, you know, chatting with Danny, Madison and Monica about this, it seems it's a fairly common experience is that, you know, junior researchers such as, you know, undergrads, PhDs, postdocs, and even, you know, new PIs in the early part of their career or, you know, new researchers who've just joined industry and who still need to expand their network, that sort of thing. These younger researchers have sort of historically not had many chances to present their work. Um, in the past, you know, when in-person conferences were a thing, it was often the PI of the group who would, you know, travel the world and give, you know, tenure tours and visit universities all over the world and present work. And then related to that, the third reason is also that when these PIs did go around and talk about uh, their group's research, what they, at least from my experience, what I would see is that they would be presenting, you know, the last five to ten years worth of work that's all been published already anyway and so it would be kind of short summaries of a selection of papers um which obviously people could just could just go and read um so what i wanted to see and this is where the jaws team kind of agreed was we want to see you know one entire project in its entirety and we want to hear it directly from the person who did it. Um, and of course, in an introduction to that sort of talk, you will get an idea of some of the previous work um, that the PI, you know, would have been talking about, like I mentioned. And then I guess the last reason is that 
all of these junior researchers that I mentioned that have been missing out. Um, this is particularly true for, you know, minoritized folks. And so we created JAWS to be as broad reaching as it possibly could to be very inclusive, where basically any young researcher um, who has a chemistry story to tell can come and present at JAWS. So yeah, those are, I guess, the main sort of reasons. That's so sweet. I really love that. And so this is really more of like a, a community building thing where, you know, in the pandemic where we would have all gotten to meet together at a conference like ACS or a national meeting um, because all of those like all of those had to to be cancelled um, JAWS kind of took in that took the place of, of conferences to be able to give one a platform for folks to talk about their science when they wouldn't have had that otherwise and two to to foster community and I love that because that's that's essentially kind of what kind of what the podcast is also aiming to do just in a more informal way um, so I think that's really cool and I really really appreciate that that's so cool I love that um, oh okay so now I want to know a little more about you and the science that you do because you obviously have a pivotal role in JAWS. And so I, I, I want to know more about what you do. So tell me about your chemistry. So I guess I can quickly go over my chemistry, brief chemistry career so far. So I did my undergrad in the country where I'm from at Edinburgh University in Scotland. And then I moved all the way around the world to Singapore to do a PhD. Um, and then after that, I moved over to Northwestern University in Illinois, just outside of Chicago in the US. So that's where I am now. Um, in my undergrad and in my PhD, I did sort of organometallics and main group chemistry. Um, but then I transitioned quite a bit from that to this field that I had never heard of until, you know, I, I was in the process of looking for jobs. The field is called systems chemistry. Um, so when I first looked into it, I, I had no idea, but it's turned out to be a really fascinating and interesting field that I am definitely hoping to continue exploring in the future. Um, so it's kind of like a spin-off, if you like, from supramolecular chemistry. Um, what I look at is synthetic self-replicators, some molecules that are designed in such a way that they have functional groups that are capable of intramolecular bonding and they interact with themselves and they make themselves. So they're capable of self-replication. Um, and studying that sort of stuff. Um, we're not studying the molecules that are believed to maybe or maybe not have been involved in the origin of life, we're taking a step away from that and not having that origin of life specific restriction, but just looking at the uh, kinetics and some of the emergent properties that these self-replicating systems can have. That's so cool. 
That's so cool. I've never heard of systems chemistry either. Yeah, so, a lot of people. Think, uh, a lot of people haven't. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. That's my mind is. Wow, my mind is blown. Self-replicating. Are they also self-assembling? Uh, I guess it depends on on the specifics of your system. So, like some work that's been done in my current group in the past, like before I joined, um, has looked at um, some gel stuff. So I guess that's a sort of application of of self-assembly. But um, in terms of if you're thinking about, you know, classic supermolecular chemistry in terms of rotaxanes or catenanes that self-assemble, then not really. Although there is an element of that. That's so cool. Now, you had mentioned that in your undergrad and PhD work that you did organometallics, and I am pretty interested. Whenever anyone says metal, my ears just perk up. So what what did you do in your undergrad and PhD research? So in my undergrad at Edinburgh, I worked in Professor Polly Arnold's lab, who she just moved to Berkeley. Um, And I was doing this little project on Again, this was a field that was still quite young at the time. It's called frustrated Lewis pairs. Um, so I was frustrated Lewis pair. Are they upset? Yeah, they're very upset because they they oh. can't react with each other. It's a, you know, it's a Lewis acid and a Lewis base, and you know they're designed in such a way that they can get into close proximity with each other, but due to like steric or perhaps electronic um, hindrance. They can't actually form a quenched acid base pair. So they're like, they're angry, they're frustrated. That's where that term comes from. Oh man, that is appropriately labeled, yeah. So I was, in my undergrad, I was combining, you know, N heterocyclic carbenes with a sort of one sidearm appendage that had a, a borane attached to it. And so that's a Lewis acid. And then the N-heterocyclic carbene is a Lewis base. And then the idea is that between those two reactive sites, you can activate some small molecules such as, you know, hydrogen or carbon dioxide. And that has potential uh, applications down the road if you can get those things to react further and maybe create, you know, fine chemicals or something like that. So that was my undergrad. And in that group, there was a postdoc who had just received... I just uh, accepted a position uh, in Singapore and he told me that he would be, you know, looking for PhD students. Would I be interested? He intends to do some similar work. And so when he explained what he was going to do, offered me to go to Singapore. So I joined him over there. Um, And because it was a brand new group, there were no sort of established projects. So my work kind of jumped around a bit. I went from using, you know, uh, bulky carbocations as Lewis acids with simple things like phosphines and amines. That didn't really work out in the FLP field. And then I started getting more and more metals involved. And then I ended up working quite a lot with Lewis basic iron carbonyl complexes. So that was pretty interesting. Um, Again, just using these frustrated Lewis pairs to 
activate mostly hydrogen, but then sometimes other small molecules with activatable bonds. But yeah, um, mostly just small molecule activation with a variety of frustrated Lewis pair systems is what my PhD was about. That's so cool. And you had mentioned carbenes, which is carbenes are such, they're just very interesting molecules in my opinion, in my opinion, right? Like, so for the folks at home who don't know what carbenes are, they are carbons with that with a lone pair of electrons on them. Uh, and I, uh, as an undergrad also worked with carbenes, So that's really cool. Um, yeah. Wow. Frustrated Lewis pairs. That's such, it's so appropriately named, I think. That's really cool. Okay, so, Craig, you are part of JAWS. And thank you, thank you also for, for letting me uh, get to know a little more about your chemistry. That's really cool. I'm very interested by it. But, but you are part of JAWS. And so, obviously, I'm gonna have to ask you the question that I've asked both Madison and Danny, but, what is your favorite shark and why? Um, so I gave this some thought. Um, and honestly, I didn't know that many species of shark. Um, so I did some, some Googling and it turns out, and I didn't know this until very recently, that there are sharks that can sometimes be found near Scotland, which I was quite surprised about. Because I would have thought the water around there would have been far too cold. Um, but there are these sharks called basking sharks. And sometimes they're referred to as Scottish basking sharks. And so naturally I was kind of drawn towards that being Scottish myself. Mm-hmm. And then when you see pictures of these things, they have gigantic mouths. And <laughs> it's both hilarious and adorable. So I'm going to have to go with the... Scottish basking shark for that. Scottish basking shark. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yeah, folks, if you have never seen a Scottish basking shark, I 10 out of 10 recommend um, giving a web search to to see those images because those are, you're right, they are both adorable and kind of kind of silly to look at. Oh, wow. That's really fun. <laughs> I, I I recently learned, apparently, so I'm going to really need to fact check this, but I, I've been told that um, whale sharks are neither whales nor sharks. But then I recently learned that whale sharks, in fact, are sharks. So I'm going to need to like do like a, a very deep investigation as to whether whale sharks are sharks in, indeed. But those that would be my choice of favorite shark. But... Thank you for humoring my my question, Craig. And I have one last one last question for you. It is arguably the most important question of this podcast. Are you ready for it? Sure. Okay. What is your favorite cake flavor and why? So I have a very sweet tooth. Um, I like sweet things. So I I like most cakes, um, 
But to be honest, my favorite one is probably one of the more simple ones. It's just a very decadent chocolate cake with also some soft chocolate icing on the top. Um, something that would be very rich. You wouldn't be able to eat a huge slice at once, but the small slice that you get is is very rich, decadent, and sweet. And the key is that it also pairs very well with coffee. Ah, yes. Which is like the only thing I drink aside from water. So, um, so that's also an important aspect. So, yeah, something simple like chocolate. Um, the richer, the better. Ah, uh, so if that uh, soft icing were a ganache, would that be better? Uh, yeah, sure. Have you had chocolate cake with fondant? I don't think so. Uh, I wonder what it would taste like having a chocolate cake with chocolate fondant. Hmm. I suppose I can only muse about it for now until I can get my hands on a, a chocolate cake with chocolate fondant, but huh. that sounds really quite lovely. And so when you have coffee with this, I, I'm assuming you drink your coffee black, like the bitterness to offset the sweetness. I don't drink it black, but I don't add oh. sugar. Ah, so, so I a little add bit of cream. a little splash of half and half or, or some milk, um, ah. but I... I used to add sugar, but I don't anymore. Well, that is an excellent way to drink coffee, in my opinion. I, I, I typically add a splash of oat milk and maybe a little bit of caramel flavoring just because I like that. If I'm having the coffee by itself, if I'm having coffee with something else, like something sweet, like donuts or cake, then I would keep the coffee black. And sometimes, sometimes I'll take like little pieces of the cake if it is spongy enough and then it doesn't crumble. Um, and dip it in the coffee. Oh, such a good yeah, thing. Yeah, I've always been a dipper. Um, yeah. It, I think it's very common in the UK to dip things in tea and coffee. And I guess I would say biscuits, but Americans would say cookies because biscuits are something else. Um, but I dip biscuits in, um, I dip biscuits in my, my coffee. Um, now, I... I have to ask because this is something that I that I learned watching Great British Bake Off or the baking show. Uh, but biscuits and cookies mean something different in the UK, no? Like so, like biscuits are much crisper, whereas cookies are softer. So I wouldn't be able to tell you the exact definitions that distinguish the two, but in my mind. A cookie has always been something like a simple chocolate chip, uh, Chips Ahoy, if you think yeah. of the Chips Ahoy brand. Something that looks like that is a cookie, whereas... Um, like a tea think. biscuit. Yeah, something like a similar to a graham cracker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you get these things called digestives in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. They're pretty similar, but not quite as sweet as graham crackers. Mm-hmm. That to me, that's a biscuit. We would yeah. call them digestive biscuits. Yes, I I call them biscuits as well. But maybe, maybe that's just because uh, that's just because that's what I grew up hearing. So, anyway, yeah. Oh, 
Sweet friend, this has been such a sweet time. Craig, thank you so much for joining uh, me to chat today. But it does look like we are nearing the end of our time. Um, to the listeners at home, thank you for joining us today. If you would like to follow the many adventures of Dr. Craig, not Craig, uh, I invite you to follow him on Twitter at Chemist Craig, uh, which will be linked in the description of this episode. If you would like to learn more about JAWS, uh, you should follow them on Twitter as well at JAWS Chem, also linked in the description. And additionally, if you would like to partake in the hype uh, and hop aboard the high train, choo choo, you are more than welcome to follow me on Twitter at Chemistry Cake. All right, friends. That is all we've got for you today. This is your friendly reminder to stay hydrated, to keep the hype alive, and to edify our village. Thanks for tuning in, Cake Nation. This is Chemistry Cake, signing off.